0: Welcome to the Draft Deeper Podcast. This is your host, Nathan Grubel. Not joining me as always, it's my producer, Kevin Black. He is taking care of some master's level college stuff. He is on a trip. He will be back hopefully sometime next week. In the meantime, however, I am in a different recording space because one of my fellow No Ceilings team members has not only offered to help out, With the recording of this podcast and be my substitute producer, he has also agreed to come on and talk multiple pertinent topics with me about the 2022 NBA draft. And in relation to it, he's going to share not just some of quote unquote his guys for the 2022 NBA draft cycle, as I'm having every member of No Cillings come on and share that with me on the Draft Deep podcast, We're also going to break down the Sacramento Kings. We're going to talk about where the team is at, the direction that they're going, and what the hell should they do with the fourth overall pick. There is no one better to talk Sacramento Kings basketball with, and I cannot wait to get some of his insights on the guys that he's chosen to talk about on tonight's episode of the podcast. You know him from those ceilings. You know him as one of the hosts of the NBA Deep Dives podcast, Nick Agur Johnson. Nick, how you doing, brother?
1: Nathan, I am doing fantastic. I will not pretend to live up to Kevin as a producer, but I will do my absolute best to make this as good an audio experience as it can be. And I'm really excited to talk some Sacramento Kings and talk some draft with you tonight.
0: Absolutely. We are going to get right into the thick of it. So as I said, there's nobody better to talk about the Sacramento Kings with than Nick, who, if you did not read his piece on noceilingsnba.com regarding why he wanted to write about the draft and get into covering the sport of basketball. It goes over his very deep Sacramento Kings fandom. I implore you to read that piece. I, I was actually tasked with looking it over before we, we gave it more of a firm edit. Nick is our editor at No Ceilings. He does an incredible job with all of our pieces as well as the draft guide, which I will plug in a second, but Nick's piece. Was absolutely incredible. It made me tear up at different points as I was reading it. I implore you to go read that piece to understand why I wanted him to come on and talk about the Sacramento Kings if you haven't already. But yes, really quick before we get into the meat and potatoes of this podcast, we released the draft guide. That's right, no ceilings put out a draft guide. Fifty eight full player profiles. We're breaking down the pros, the cons of each player, and evaluation some prospect chemistry. We got plenty of ingredients in that draft guide on our top 58 players. And we launched a merch line. We launched shirts, hoodies, shorts, mugs, whatever your heart desires in the world of merch. We have it at noceilingsnba.bigcartel.com. So we had to make sure to get that plug in there early so that everybody goes and checks out the incredible work that everyone on the No Ceilings team has done Over the last few months to prepare for this point to really head into this draft month filled with incredible content that we're going to keep putting out for you day after day after day. So got the No Ceilings plugs in there, Nick. Anything you want to add about the awesome work that you helped contribute to in editing the whole damn guide as well as writing in it? Anything else you want to plug about what we're doing in No Ceilings?
1: Well, first of all, thank you so much for the kind words about my article last week. And thank you so much for taking a first look at that before it went out into the world. It's been an incredible joy and honor to be the editor-in-chief for No Ceilings and to get to edit that draft guide and work alongside all of my wonderful colleagues at No Ceilings NBA, including you, of course. So again, thank you so much for the kind words about the piece and for taking a look at that before it went out to the world. and. Really, other than that, I can only echo what you said. Definitely check out noceilingsnba.bigcartel.com. Take a look at our draft guide. We, as a whole team, put a ton of work into that. And Corey Taliba did an amazing job with the artwork and the design for the draft guide. So check that out, please, if you haven't already. And also, if you are interested in No Ceilings merch, definitely give
0: that a look as well. Corey has quite literally been burning the midnight oil helping to put that draft guide together and get it to where it is today, to where it's it's published, it's out, and it's purchasable in PDF form. So thank you, Corey, for everything you've done for No Ceilings, as well as everybody else, like we said, for contributing to the project as a whole. No Ceilings, NBA.BigCartel.com. Okay, that is enough plugs. We are not just here to talk about No Ceilings and pat ourselves in the back. We're here to talk basketball. We want to talk about the Sacramento Kings, who by synergy last year rated out 22nd in offense, 27th on defense. We know about the concerns of the team. We know they aren't great on either side of the basketball. That's why they were a lottery team. Nevertheless, the Kings have some interesting players in the fold. They have some legitimate star-quality names on the team to build around. They made some moves for at least one of those guys, we'll, we'll talk about Damanis Sabonis and, and the likes of the rookie class as well in a second. But before we dive into De'Aaron Fox and those guys that take a look at some of the pieces individually, Nick, why don't you just share with myself as well as my audience some of your big picture takeaways from the Kings season last year and what you're looking forward to be built on as we move into this draft period and next year? So the Kings, as you
1: hinted at, made a pretty significant trade in the middle of the season, right around the trade deadline. And at the time, I was not particularly pleased by the move because I am and will continue to be a huge fan of Tyrese Halliburton. And so it was upsetting for the Kings to ship him off. But the further away I get from the actual moment of that trade, the more I sort of understand and am comfortable with the Logic, the reasoning behind that move. And the Kings did ship out Tyrese Halliburton, but they also got back a multi time All Star who's still only 26 years old in DeMontis Sabonis, someone who fits very well with De'Aaron Fox, and who, in their limited playing time together down the stretch run of the season, they showed that they could really work well together as a tandem. So, you know, the Kings had yet another rough season, but, you know, 16 years in a row of not making the playoffs, that's kind of the expectation at this point. (laughs) But, you know, ultimately, there were some encouraging signs for sure down the stretch run of the season. And while I wasn't particularly a fan of the Tyrese Halliburton trade at the time, and I think there'll be a part of me that's always a little bit upset at the Kings trading away Tyrese Halliburton, the further away I get from the actual moment of the trade, the more comfortable with it I am. And, the more excited I am about the DeMontis Sabonis, De'Aaron Fox sort of
0: duo at the core of the Kings future at this point. So let's break down those two pillars of the franchise at this point. We'll talk about them individually, and then we'll touch on their fit together, and then we'll move into the other main quote-unquote ship for the Sacramento Kings, who would be Davion Mitchell, who they got the draft last year. So starting with De'Aaron Fox, came into the league in the 2017-18 season, came in averaging 11.6 points per game and 4.4 assists per game has blossomed into a legitimate star guard, or at the very least knocking on the doorstep of stardom in the league. Last year, averaged 25.2 points per game and 7.2 assists took a slight step back this year in some of those counting statistics he had. Um, a rough ending to the year due to injury, but nevertheless still put up impressive numbers, 23.2 points per game, 5.6 assists per game, 3.9 rebounds, 47% shooting from the field overall. Still struggling a little bit from three-point range, which I know, Nick, you'll you'll want to touch on a second, um, At 29.7% with a 17.4 PER. There are a lot of positives to talk about with this game. There are still some negatives that are holding him back, such as the lack of defensive impact, I would expect the finishing numbers at the rim to be a tad better than what they are. And obviously we can talk, touch on some of the long range shooting and some of the playmaking, but overall with what De'Aaron Fox offers as a point guard for the Kings, I would say he's been trending in the right direction and has made pretty significant improvements each way um, through his NBA, through each year of his NBA career. Now in his age 24, just finished his age 24 season moving into what we're expecting to be the prime of his career. So Nick, you've gotten to see enough of De'Aaron Fox at this point. Talk to me about his game, your evaluation on him from his rookie year all the way up till now, and just answer the question for me and my audience to help set the table for what the Kings might be looking for in the draft. Is he the point guard of the future for the franchise?
1: So I'm going to start out by answering the final question, which is, yes, I think he is the future franchise point guard for the Sacramento Kings. And in terms of the development of his game, it's interesting, especially in terms of his three-point shooting, because while the percentage at, you know, under 30 percent is not exactly where you'd want it to be, you know, he has gotten much better over the course of his NBA career at incorporating more three-point shots into his diet, you know, adding a few more off-the-dribble looks, getting more comfortable with dribbling into his three-point shots, and I think that's really the key for him is that he doesn't need to be a great three-point shooter. He just needs to be a good enough three-point shooter to unlock the rest of his game. And, you know, when he was knocking down his three-point shots with regularity, the rest of his offensive game just opened up and it just made him that much more dangerous on the offensive end. So while the three-point shooting is a concern and the defense is definitely a concern, I think. His increased volume and increased willingness and increased confidence from three-point range is a really encouraging sign, even if the percentage isn't exactly where I'd want it to be. In terms of his development, I think the biggest thing for me, honestly, has just been his pace of play. When De'Aaron Fox came into the league, he was the fastest player in the league. I think he's still the fastest player in the league. But especially during his rookie year, he really only had one speed, which was all go full speed 100 <laughs> percent of the time and you know over the course of his time in the nba he has gotten so much better at playing with pace and you know being able to slow down and then charge past people and you know use his speed more to his advantage by mixing up speeds rather than just going full tilt all the time and given how fast he is, you know, going full tilt all the time worked for him up through high school and through college. And, you know, even during his rookie year, that was still pretty solid for him to be able to just blow by pretty much everybody. Again, I still think he's the fastest player in the NBA, so he's going to have the speed advantage against anybody he's going up against. But his game really matured with his ability to be able to mix it up in terms of his pace of play. And that, I think, has been a huge sign for his development in terms of his future and his sort of place with the Kings, I think that he's kind of in the next guard up for all-star consideration category alongside Shea Gilgis Alexander. I think those two guys, those two former Kentucky guys are sort of right on the outside of the Western Conference all-star guard picture, the incredibly competitive, crowded Western Conference all-star guard race. And I think that De'Aaron Fox is the future for the Sacramento Kings. I think even though he missed time down the stretch with injury. I think there were some incredibly cur- incredibly encouraging signs during the time that he did get to play with DeMontis Sabonis. So I am fully in on him as the point guard of the future. Let's talk
0: about Sabonis, and let's talk about the fit of the two players together. We referenced that it was a big mid-season trade, and I was a little bit taken back when I saw the trade. It was something that I, I wasn't expecting to see come across my phone leading up to the deadline. But nevertheless, I, I think the Kings had to make the move, even though the sacrifice of, of Tyrese Halliburton and having to put him in the deal may seem great. At the same time, the only way to find out what you have in a young team and who's going to ultimately get better to be core pillars of the team versus who you might look to move off of to continue to bring in talent that that better fits the structure and the environment and the culture of the team, the only way to do that is to bring in better talent more veteran talent and talent that can really make other players better. Right. And Devonis Sabonis is one of those players that can help make everyone else around him better. He's a, was a 19, 12 and five guy last year, 57% from the field. Um, we know what he can do on the block. We know what he can do facing opponents up and taking it to the basket. We know what he can do playmaking and then making passes from the elbows, being one of those kind of quote unquote, offensive hub bigs that you can, you know, build somewhat of an offense around and, A dance partner, a two-man game partner that that he can be for De'Aaron Fox. De'Aaron Fox hasn't had a big man like that to play with. Um, at at any point through his career yet. Manas Abonis just finished his age 25 season is now 26. So they're also pretty much around the same age as each other, both really starting to come into the primes of their career. So they made a trade not only for another star, but somebody who the timelines of both of the players really make sense for the direction where the team wants to head, which is getting back into playoff contention, maybe not quite contending for coming out of the Western conference quite yet, but certainly getting back into playoff contention. So from, That perspective, I 100% agree with the trade that the Kings made to bring in somebody like a Sabonis. Nick, what was your reaction when the trade was made? How do you feel about Sabonis as a basketball player, and how do you feel about the fit between him and De'Aaron Fox? Do you think that he can continue to bring more of the best out of De'Aaron Fox, kind of as you alluded to um, when talking about Fox's game?
1: So my initial reaction to the trade was shock and upset, just Mainly <laughs> in the fact that I really believe in Tyrese Halliburton, but you know, again, it's the kind of thing where the further removed I got from that particular trade, the more comfortable I was with the decision making behind it, and you know, in particular, the players that they acquired in that trade, with Demata Sabonis obviously being the headliner there, and you know, in terms of his fit going forward. I think the most interesting element of his game in terms of how it plays alongside Deer and Fox is DeMontis Sabonis is one of the best passing big men in the league. And as someone who watched DeMarcus Cousins for the Kings for many, many years, it's certainly a huge element to any offense when you can have a big man who can, you know, make plays out of the high posts, who can make plays out of dribble handoffs, hit cutters, you know, all of those sorts of things. And that is even more intriguing to me alongside De'Aaron Fox, because while De'Aaron Fox is a pretty solid decision maker, you know, decent passer, he's not a spectacular passing playmaking kind of point guard. So having someone like Demontis Sabonis, who can really be the passing hub of an offense, I think will open up a lot of air, open up a lot of avenues for De'Aaron Fox's game. And even in the limited. Time that they did get to play together this past season after the trade, it definitely seemed clear that De'Aaron Fox's game was really opened up by playing alongside someone in Demonte Sabonis who can draw a ton of defensive attention in the paint, can space the floor a little bit. Although his three point shooting last year, particularly during his time in Sacramento, was not all that great. He shot twenty three and a half percent from three point Mm -hmm. range. During his time in Sacramento, you know, he's a 32% three point shooter for his career. So, not spectacular on that front, but, you know, he's certainly not a non shooter in any regard. And he's a really solid mid range shooter as well. So, I think that the passing element of DeMontis Sabonis's game plays really well alongside DeMar and Fox. And then the other thing is, Sabonis is just a preternatural rebounder. I mean, he has averaged 12 rebounds a game for three seasons in a row now, and that's something I think that will also be a huge asset to the Kings. Is just his ability to you know end defensive possessions by grabbing rebounds and you know even help the Kings out a little bit on the offensive glass. So there are some defensive concerns I think with the Sabonis Deer and Fox pairing, but especially on the offensive end, I think those two complement each other really well and. They showed that during the brief playing time that they got together down the stretch of this past season, and I'm really excited to see, you know, what they can do together, how they can sort of run a two-man game, especially, you know, after an offseason and training camp together to sort of figure out how their games mesh best.
0: And I think there are definitely ways where the Kings can continue to improve the defense around those two and certainly look to build into different pieces to surround them with better defense. But sometimes it's a lot harder to find a potential two-man combination like a Sabonis and a Fox than it is to find some of the other ancillary defensive pieces to put around some of the some guys like that. But finding those core offensive pillars that can really be the one-two punch to to win you a lot of basketball games of the NBA. It's a lot tougher to do than, than, than people realize. So, again, that that's another reason why I don't fault them for make, taking the swing and making this a bonus trade when they did. Speaking of defense, there is a third player that we obviously have to touch on when we talk about the Sacramento Kings, but this is Draft Deeper. This is a draft-oriented podcast, and this player was drafted last year while I was covering the draft. On the podcast front, Davion Mitchell, um, who did an awesome job at the very least on the defensive end for the Sacramento Kings coming in early on in his rookie year, which I know that you'll touch on Nick in a second. The the sentiment that I've also shared on this podcast multiple times, which is rookies, very rarely do they come in and impact winning basketball games, but re- very rarely do they come come in impacting winning While playing defense, right? A lot of rookies and first year players and even second year players, they just don't have the defensive chops quite yet to come in and play at an NBA level, whether it's guarding their own position or playing um, with the others on a team. The chemistry aspect isn't there. They haven't been in the league as long as some of these other guys. The best teams in the NBA are built defensively being versatile and covering ground as a team and as a unit. So the fact that Davion Mitchell can come in and make a very similar impact defensively to what he did in college, where he earned the nickname off night at Baylor. I mean, that's, that's quite the compliment that I'm able to give Davion somebody who analysts were saying after January, February, like this kid's going to be in all defense uh, conversations at one point or another throughout his NBA career, which is, again, that's a very high compliment to give such a young player. So You can live with some of the offense, which was definitely up and down at different points of the season, definitely better later in the season. But regardless, Nick, take the offense and the defense into account How do you see his future with the team moving forward in terms of role? Do you see him as a starter alongside De'Aaron Fox? Do you see him as more of like a six-man or like a high-value role player coming off the bench, giving a different change of pace to the game? How do you view his future with the Kings moving forward after what you were able to evaluate and see from his rookie year? So
1: this is a bit of a cop-out answer, but I think it will really depend on what the Kings do three weeks from now on draft night. (laughs) I think that, you know, in terms of what Davion Mitchell showed, obviously the defense was spectacular. I mean, his ability, especially as a rookie in the NBA, to not only be a positive contributor on the defensive end, which basically no rookies are positive contributors on the defensive end, but just some of his defensive tape was special. I mean, his ability to mirror offensive players on the perimeter is absolutely something else and you know heading into draft night i was someone who was quite high on davion mitchell and when the kings ended up selecting him at ninth i was confused to say the least you know because they as as as, was i and and a lot of people man don't worry as as were many people you know given the whole deer and fox tyrese halliburton thing but you know ultimately he was right around i don't remember right now if i had him ninth or tenth on my board at the end of the draft process last year but you know he was someone at the ninth overall pick who if Monty mcnair had davion mitchell as his best player available i could totally understand that you know and maybe the fit was a little bit strange and i think that in part prompted the tyrese halliburton trade but i mean in terms of his defense that was something special now His offense, you know, again, as you mentioned already, it sort of came and went throughout the season. He was much, much better in the last couple months of the season. And that's, I think, why I struggle a bit with the starter slash sixth man designation for Davion Mitchell, because... You know, towards the end of the season, after Tyrese Halliburton was traded, and, you know, in particular, after De'Aaron Fox went down with injury and Davion Mitchell got some starting opportunities down the stretch run of the season, you know, granted, those were teams that the Kings were playing in March and April, long after they were out of playoff contention, so, you know, maybe take some of those numbers with a bit of a grain of salt, but, I mean... With Davion Mitchell, once he was able to have a little bit more on ball oxygen, you know, able to be the primary point guard running the offense, he showed a lot, especially in terms of his passing game, which, you know, his abilities as a passer, I think, are really interesting, especially in comparison to De'Aaron Fox, who that's not exactly a strong point for him. Whereas Davion Mitchell, especially down the stretch run of the season, was just an exceptional passer and playmaker for the Kings. The three point shooting is interesting. He ended the year just under 32% from deep, 31.6%. And that is after he showed remarkable improvement as a three point shooter over the course of his college career to the point where by the end of his time in college at Baylor, I mean, you know, his last season for Baylor when they won the national championship, he was a 45% three-point shooter. Now, he was not a 45% three-point shooter (laughs) last season. And, you know, I think we'll touch on it a little bit, just my philosophy in terms of three-throw shooting as well as three-point shooting in terms of trying to evaluate players as shooters. But, you know, with Davion Mitchell, I think that his 31.6% mark from three-point range doesn't quite give the full picture of, what kind of a shooter he is. You know, I think he had a little bit of bad shooting luck from three point range. And I think he's definitely going to be closer to an average or above average three point shooter over the course of his NBA career. So it's interesting to me because I think that if he were on a different team in a different context, then I think his starter upside is a lot easier to see. The question is, do the Kings want to start both De'Aaron Fox and Davion Mitchell in the backcourt and Davion Mitchell's exceptional defense and ability to guard guys much bigger than him makes that a lot easier of a fit to see, but ultimately both Davion Mitchell and De'Aaron Fox played better when they had more opportunities with the ball in their hands and, you know, playing them both on the court at the same time, by definition means that one of them, at least one of them is not going to have the ball in their hands on any given possession. So I think that Davion Mitchell as a six man is a fascinating prospect for the Kings because he can come off the bench and play key defensive minutes down the stretch if the Kings need him, but, you know, also run the offense off the bench, you know, be the primary sort of driver of the offense when deer and Fox sits out of the game. So again, I think a lot of it will depend on what the Kings end up doing on draft night in three weeks, but You know, given that I've already declared De'Aaron Fox as the point guard of the future for the Kings, it's a little bit harder for me to (laughs) to declare that (laughs) Mitchell Mitchell's also going to be the future franchise point guard for the Kings. I think the fit in the backcourt for them is interesting, but I think that if both Fox and Mitchell remain on the Kings that at least for next season, it would make a lot more sense for Mitchell to come off the bench as a six man, or, you know, maybe be a starter who goes to the bench relatively early on in the game so that he can come in in the second quarter as the point guard off the bench. So you know, a bit of a wishy-washy answer there, I think. But I think depending on the context, Davion Mitchell can definitely be a starter. But for this Kings team, at least for the next season or so, I think it might make more sense for him to come off the bench to get a little bit more of that on-ball oxygen that he got down the stretch of the season for Sacramento.
0: I agree with that evaluation 100%. And I think even though some people would Say they're disappointed with the results. If Davion Mitchell was better suited as a sixth man and Sacramento took him with the ninth overall pick, you would want more out of that pick. In theory, you'd want starter equity. However, even though we're not obviously shutting the door on Mitchell being a starter at the same time, it's really hard to find impact players in the draft who are long-term impact players, regardless of whether they're a starter or just playing a lot of minutes for a team, but just coming off the bench. It's very hard to find those guys regardless, right? So I think that Kings fans should be happy that they have Davion Mitchell in the fold and he's along for the ride with where this team is going. And I would be thrilled to have Davion Mitchell on my team regardless of if I'm starting him or bringing him off the bench. But I think you've laid out a very detailed and an eloquent answer. So I appreciate your insight on that, Nick. So we we painted the picture, right? We've talked about some of the key pillars for the team. We talked about one of the important young pieces and assets that the Kings have moving forward. Now we need to talk about who would be arguably the youngest asset moving forward on the team, whoever the hell they take with the fourth overall pick in the draft. That's right. The Kings jumped up in the lottery. They have picked number four in the fold and there's already a lot of buzz with, are the Kings going to select somebody at four? Are they possibly trading up with Oklahoma city moving all the way up to two? To get a player that they're targeting, are they trading back with somebody like the New York Knicks? We've heard of that report as well. Are they trading back to 11, picking up some additional assets and/or another veteran who could come in and help the team win now? Given the the front office wants to contend in the playoffs, not just be another or have another middling season, I should say. There are many different directions the Kings can go, Nick. But I want you to first give me your reaction to. The, Knicks act, uh, the, the Kings excuse me, actually moving up to the fourth pick in the draft and then kind of rank out how you want to see this scenario unfold as far as do you want them to keep the pick or would you ra- prefer them trade up to get a player? Maybe you value somebody that they could get a number two more than somebody that, that they could get in number four or would you accept them trading back if the right player and or package was available for them if they did so?
1: So first of all, I was ecstatic when the Kings moved up in the lottery. I think there are a lot of people in the draft space who think that this is a three-player draft at the top. I happen to think that this is a four-player draft at the top. So as soon as I realized that the Kings were going to move into the top four, I was just ecstatic again. I mean, it was, the Kings have moved up in the lottery four times in 37 years, and (laughs) Moving into the top four in a four-player draft was huge in my mind. And as I'm sure we are about to get into, you know, maybe there are some people who have some fit concerns with the player who is probably most likely to be on the board at four out of that top four group. But I mean, for me, I was just so, so happy that the Kings moved into the top four. You know, obviously I would have preferred them to be one, two, or three, but ultimately, given that I think that this is a four player draft at the top, I think that the Kings are in an excellent position to draft a player who can seriously alter the upside of this franchise for the better. In terms of what I want them to do with the pick, that's a bit more of a complicated question. And You know, in terms of the Thunder at two, as you brought up, you know, I discussed this with the wonderful people on the Topic Thunder podcast who have been incredible supporters of us over here at No Ceilings. And we had a wonderful conversation about, you know, the dynamic between the Kings and the Thunder at two and four. So for me, I think that I would prefer that the Kings just keep the pick, because ultimately, if they're going to move up from four to two, there's going to be a discussion about what kind of asset they have to give up. And, you know, again, going back to the topic thunder conversation from recent weeks, um, you know, the conversation was basically that the topic thunder guys were saying they would probably have to get an unprotected first round pick from the Kings to be willing to make that trade. And my response was, do you realize that the Kings have not made the playoffs in 16 years? They (laughs) cannot give up an unprotected first round pick under any circumstances. So, you know, with that in mind, I think that the kind of assets that the Kings would have to give up to move from four to two just wouldn't be worth the risk for me, given that I think that this is a four-player group at the top of this draft. So I would say that my preference would be that they keep the pick. My second-ranked preference would be that they try and trade up to number two with Oklahoma City Thunder. All the buzz at this point seems to indicate that it's all but set in stone that the Orlando Magic will be taking Jabari Smith Jr. with the number one overall pick, which means that if the Kings do trade up to number two, that would leave them open to select Chet Holmgren with the second overall pick. And I have Chet at number one on my board personally, and I think that he is just a spectacular fit with the Kings. I think that he will probably need to play power forward his first couple of years in the NBA. If Agreed. Not- for, you know, the entirety of his NBA career. And I think that the Kings having Demandus Sabonis in the fold means that they can play Sabonis as, you know, the drop man, as the center in most coverages and have Chet do what he does best, you know, namely rove around on the defensive end and cause chaos. So I think that Chet Holmgren is someone who would just be an absolutely fantastic fit for the Kings in every way. And, you know, he's also the player that I have highest on my personal board. So I certainly would not be upset if... <laughs> (laughs) excited to trade up to number two i think the reason that i would prefer that they hold on to the pick is just because i'm a bit worried about what the cost of moving off that number four pick to move up to number two would be and then my third option on the list would be trading down i mean again i think that this is a pretty clear four-man group at the top of this draft and trading out of the top four surprise surprise means that you're probably not going to be selecting one of those four guys in the top of the draft and I think that the kinds of pieces that the Kings are going to be able to pick up by moving back a few slots in the draft, those kinds of, they're just not worth the fact that they're missing out on taking the superstar upside swing that they really need to take at this point. You know, again, they've missed the playoffs for 16 straight years. They really need another superstar talent in the fold. And I think that trading down from the four pick would really hamper their chances of getting that kind of player in the draft. So my preference would be that they hold on to the pick. If they don't hold on to the pick, I really hope it's because they're trading up to two so that they can get Chet Holmgren. And I really hope that they're
0: not, you know, trading down in the draft for more win-now assets. So let's really get into the sauce of this podcast. And one of the reasons why I'm having not only you on, Nick, on Draft Deeper, but every member of the No Ceilings team, or at the very least, as many as I can get on, For the draft, we're not that far away from the draft. We'll see how many I can accommodate. But the reason why I would love everybody to be on is because I want to talk to them about their guys for the twenty twenty two NBA draft cycle. And I've given my guys for the twenty twenty two draft. Tyler Ruckers come on and shared his. I just had Maxwell on recently to talk about some of his guys through the draft cycle. And it's a special series for me to be able to do in general with both you guys as well as other guests. That I've had on the show because it allows us to have conversations about other players and it allows us to have different viewpoints shared on this podcast feed about those players rather than my audience just continuing to, to listen to my regurgitation of the same evaluations that I've been giving for months. I want other viewpoints and other opinions shared so that everybody can think about different things and evaluate these players differently as they go back and watch some film as they're finishing up their evaluations for their own personal big boards, just different ideas. And there's no better person to have than to share different ideas about the first player. Nick that you wanted to talk about as one of your guys is also probably the target that you would want the Kings to hone in on with the fourth overall pick in the draft. So why don't we talk about who you would love for the Kings to take with the fourth overall pick? I know there's two players that are definitely in that race for you, but definitely expound upon one of them because he is one of the guys that you wanted to talk about tonight.
1: Yeah. So I will start off by talking about the Kings portion of this. So I have gone back and forth many, 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 many times (laughs) in the few days since the NBA draft lottery, but really the decision at number four for me for the Sacramento Kings, again, I'm assuming here that the three big men of Chet Holmgren, Paula Boncaro and Jabari Smith jr. Are off the board at number four, because I think that if any of those three is still on the board, by the time the Kings pick at number four, that the Kings will rush to the podium and pick whichever of those guys is still there. But I have Jaden Ivey at number three on my personal big board and The fit with Jaden Ivey in Sacramento is a little bit harder to see than the fit with any of the other three big men sort of in that top four group for me. But I have Jaden Ivey at third on my personal board. I think that I really bought into him even coming into the season after his first year at Purdue because I thought that his 26% three-point shooting from his first year in college was – the aberration and not his 40% shooting from three point range in high school or the shooting that he showed in FIBA U19 play. And, you know, sure enough, this past season at Purdue, he was above 40% from three point range for most of the season. And he had a really cold month of February, which dipped his three point number lower, which he ended the year as a 36% three point shooter on five attempts per game. But you can't, do this really as an evaluator but you know pretending that I can if you remove the month of february from his statistics he still shot above 40% from 3 point range on the season so you know even so like
0: 36% on 5 attempts per game that that's nothing to sneeze at like it's one thing if he's at 36% on like one or two attempts per game but the fact that he's at 5 plus attempts per game with at that percentage like that is an indicator of legitimate improvement
1: absolutely and you know i think it's not just the idea of improvement for me, but also the fact that I think his first season at Purdue was really an outlier in terms of him shooting really poorly. And that I think the shooting that he displayed this year is a lot closer to the kind of shooter that he is 36%, especially given the kind of ridiculous athlete and finisher around the basket that Jaden Ivy is, you know, that 36% number is pretty solid, but you know, even so, I think that he could be an even better shooter than that. And barring that really tough month of February, he was a 40% shooter from three-point range as he was in high school. And, you know, I think that his ability as a shooter was dramatically underrated heading into the year just because of a bit of bad shooting luck his first season in Indiana at Purdue. And, you know, I think that ultimately him being a solid slash above average slash maybe even really good shooter from three-point range will just Unlock the rest of his game and allow him to be the absolute menace charging downhill that he can be. You know, he did a lot of good work with the ball in his hands, which he didn't have the ball in his hands as much as he might have at other places, given that Purdue chose to run a lot of their offense through Zach Eady and through Travion Williams, who is one of the best, if not the best passers in this draft class. You know, I think that Jaden Ivy has a lot more equity as a passer slash playmaker than he got to show at times throughout the season at Purdue. But even without that, I mean, he has absolute superstar upside. He's a ridiculous, ridiculously talented athlete. And again, I have him at number three on my personal board. I really buy into the kind of player that he can be if he hits his developmental upside. And the debate that I had is really just sort of a philosophical debate for me, honestly, because my go-to for all of these things is just take the best player available. But the thing with best player available is that sometimes If you go to a team where you won't have as many developmental opportunities as you might somewhere else, it might be harder for the best player to sort of reach that best player available upside. And, you know, the debate with Jaden Ivey going to the Kings is I think that a lot of the reason why I have him at third overall is that... If he goes to a team where he's going to have a lot of on-ball reps, where they're going to sort of rely on him as the primary point guard, you know, say he goes to Houston at third overall, and they decide, all right, Jay Ivey, you're going to be our point guard. You're going to play alongside Jalen Green. You're going to do a lot of the playmaking for us. He'll probably stumble early on, but I think that his ability to reach his sort of 99th percentile outcome is going to be a lot higher when he's going to have more opportunities with the ball in his hands as a primary point guard. and if he goes to Sacramento, you know, he's going to be playing a lot more off the ball. And I think that because he's an exceptional cutter, because he reads the floor really well on offense, and because I really buy into him as a shooter, I think that he still has every chance to be an absolute superstar if he ends up going to the Kings at number four. But the flip side is with Keegan Murray, who I have at fifth on my board, you know, with Keegan Murray, he fits an Absolute position of need for the Sacramento Kings as someone who is a really solid shooter on the wing, who has real defensive chops, who slots in perfectly alongside Harrison Barnes as sort of a forward tandem for the Kings. And, you know, that's where I sort of go back to the best player available versus fit philosophical argument in the sense that Keegan Murray is going to have every opportunity to be the absolute best player that he can be if he is drafted by the Sacramento Kings at number four overall whereas Jaden Ivey will not have as many opportunities with the ball in his hands in Sacramento as he would in, say, Houston. And ultimately, I think I'm going to end up saying the Kings should just take Jaden Ivey if he's a player available at four. I think that he has one of the highest superstar upsides in this class, and the Kings desperately need someone to be a superstar. And, you know, the sort of Tyrese Halliburton argument, it's a bit different with Jaden Ivey because Tyrese Halliburton, Davion Mitchell and De'Aaron Fox are all point guards. You know, De'Aaron Fox is a little bit more of a combo guard than the other two, but all three of those guys are guys who really need the ball in their hands to be them, be, be their best selves. And while maybe Jaden Ivey's absolute, absolute ceiling, would be easier to reach if he has the ball in his hands more often. I still think that even as an off-ball player, he has the potential to be an absolute superstar, and the Kings can't afford to pass up on that kind of player for someone who I think might be more likely to reach that 99th percentile outcome in Keegan Murray, but whose 99th percentile
0: outcome is just lower in my mind than Jaden Ivey's. So Corey and I were actually just on combos court. He had us on to do an NBA lottery mock draft. And I had the fourth overall pick in that mock and I spit out Jay Divey as immediately when combo was done asking the question of who am I going to take for the Sacramento Kings? And my whole philosophy behind that was exactly what you just laid out, Nick. At the end of the day, for me, from a philosophical standpoint, I'm going BPA as many times as possible, especially when a team like the Sacramento Kings, they just need talent. They need the best players because of where they're trying to be in the shortest amount of time and i know that you can technically make an argument that keegan murray might be the more nba ready player out of the two but i'm always going to take the best talent the best asset and honestly the only thing that really concerns me about it the aaron fox jay nivey backcourt pairing is the defensive concerns right because we know that fox has issues on the defensive end he's never been a one-on-one ball stopper he does struggle at other times playing within the the team scheme of things defensively and Jay ivy has some of those same struggles as well particularly in pick and roll defense i have rarely seen him been able to, to fight through a screen or be attentive enough to, to get through the screen and pick and roll. He can get stopped pretty easily on that front. And then, you know, it's it's all, all dogs go from, from that standpoint. The opposing team definitely has an edge. But offensively, there really aren't as many questions about his game as I initially thought there were. You can just take a look at some of the synergy numbers. 77th percentile in terms of total offense, 80th percentile when you factor in all possessions plus assists. 84th percentile scoring out of the pick and roll, 80th percentile in isolation, 81st percentile off screens, 89th percentile off handoffs, 70th percentile on cuts. By the way, I'm listing off. You can look at some of the other play types, including passes, the fact that he has a floater, he can go to the finishing around the basket. But a lot of the play types that I started to initially read off they are generally off-ball play types, minus a lot of the isolation and, and the pick-and-roll ball handler scoring. But when we talk about his efficiency in transition, out of the break, working off screens, playing off handoffs, coming into the basket, a lot of the same ways that we could talk about Sabonis can help De'Aaron Fox's game. He can help Jay Nybe take steps forward as an off-ball player as well really playing into that two-guard role, which is why offensively I'm not necessarily concerned about the fit there. And then you mentioned some of the on-ball playmaking that he – can do so long as he gets the reps to continue to develop Nick. There are ways where the Kings can mix and match different lineups and they can mix up the rotations to give him more of those reps. Even if he's not doing all that with the starters, if he is the starting two guard for the Kings, should he be drafted there? There are ways where they can mix and match the lineups to give him more of those developmental reps. So while I'm also a Keegan Murray truther and I wouldn't fault anybody for making the argument for Keegan Murray to go for to the Kings, I personally would just go the BPA route according to my board. And that would be Ivy, who you have been number three. I have been number four. I think at the end of the day, you just take the best player available. And that was an excellent breakdown on Jay Ivy's game, Nick. Let's move into another player who you did want to talk about tonight. Someone who you're definitely higher on him than than, than I am, but I understand why you're higher on him. And, and you not, you're not the highest on him that I've seen in terms of draft Twitter and everybody sharing their boards, but you're higher than consensus is what I would say, and that would be we're talking about Nikola Jovic. Um Really interesting forward prospect. Um, played with Mega, six eleven, can shoot from distance, can handle the basketball, can make plays for others. There are some positional concerns defensively, and. I've had some questions about whether the shooting is 100% going to translate in the NBA. I don't always love the mechanics. I don't always love the shot selection, but when he's on, he can do a lot of the right things that an NBA team is looking for when it comes to positional versatility from an offensive standpoint. Do you have the requisite size to play multiple positions? Can you involve yourself in on ball and off ball actions? Can you keep the ball moving, make plays for others and can you shoot from the perimeter at his best? He can do all of those things. Um, I just, there's just something about it, Nick. The main reason why I've dropped him down my board is that there are just a number of domestic guys who I think are more interesting at different positions that I would rather take swings on, but I'm sure you're about to make an excellent argument for Jovic as to why he should be higher on a lot of people's boards. So why don't you go ahead and make that argument, Nick? Why is he one of your guys and why should somebody like myself or others who are doubting their, their evaluations on Jovic, for example... Why should we maybe go back and, and refresh our memory with some of the film on him and and look at potentially moving him up our big boards? So
1: as you mentioned, I am not the biggest believer in Nikolayovich in the draft space, but I certainly buy into him a lot more than most, if not all, of our, <laughs> our no ceilings colleagues. So I do not have him in the top ten, but I do have Nikolayovich at number eleven on my big board right now. And Really, I think for me, there's a very simple case, and then there is a little bit more of a complex case for him. So, the very simple case is he's 6'11, he's an excellent passer, and I really buy into his jump shot. So, you know, when you combine those things, like 35% shooter can really pass the ball, and he's 6'11, you know, there's a baseline, I think, for that kind of player at the NBA level that I think warrants at least consideration in the later picks in the lottery. And the more complicated case, I guess, is a comparison that we have discussed among no ceilings people decently frequently. And, you know, not to plug again, but to plug again, one of the comparisons that I made for Nikoliovich in the no ceilings draft guide is I think that Nemanja Bialica is a really solid sort of 50th percentile outcome for Nikoliovich. You know, I think that Bielica was a little bit better defensively. I think that Jovic has the potential to be a bit better of a shooter. But, you know, ultimately, if you're selecting at 11 in this particular draft, which is pretty light on passing slash playmaking prospects, you know, if your 50th percentile outcome is getting a guy... At 19, who the comparison is someone in Nemanja Bielica who won a Euroleague MVP, came over to the NBA in his mid 20s, was a starter for a number of years, and is playing in tonight's NBA finals game for the Golden State Warriors. You know, I think if that's sort of the average outcome for Nikoliovic, you know, multi year starter, long term bench piece who came over to the NBA much earlier than Nemanja Bielitsa, that's a really solid player to get at 11th overall as someone who you can rely on with pretty decent certainty as someone who will be at a minimum, a valuable role player. And, you know, for certain periods of his career can be a potential starter. Now that's sort of what I think of as, you know, the average ish slash like 50th to 60th percentile outcome. But if Jovic hits his ceiling, I mean, he could be something special as an offensive initiator who can really shoot the ball from distance. His defense is not great. That's a dramatic understatement, but uh, (laughs) certainly not great. Uh, His first step, Tyler Rucker in particular, has railed against his first step also being not all that great. And, you know, he's not the world's best athlete, but You know, ultimately, given his shooting touch, which I really believe in, you know, I think that him knocking down 35% of his shots, even though his shot selection might not always be the best, is a pretty solid sign, especially given that he did that in a professional league as a 17-year-old last year and an 18-year-old this year. You know, ultimately, if he's got a pretty solid floor as like a rotation contributing piece who can really pass the ball at 6'11 and be a stretch option you know, that's, I think, a pretty solid baseline for him. And if he does hit his absolute upside as a shooting and playmaking threat, then he could be something special at the NBA level. So, you know, again, the simplistic case is just, you know, he's a near seven-footer who can shoot and pass and who was successful in a professional league as a teenager. But the more complicated case is, you know, if he really does hit his upside he could be the kind of player who we look back on this draft class and say, wow, why did he fall all the way to where he fell, you know, given the sort of baseline skill set that he has.
0: So another player who I'm really glad that, that first of all, you included Ivy as well as Jovic in your players that are your guys and that you wanted to talk about on this podcast tonight. Another one that, that a smile just runs across my face when I see his name at this point, Ochai Bajie out of Kansas. And There are things that we can talk about in particular to his game, which I'm sure that you'll do an excellent job at breaking down in a second, Nick. But there's also a few things that when we evaluate prospects and we talk about players and how they can impact the NBA game on on mediums like like draft Twitter, we don't always talk about the intangibles as far as who a player is both on as well as off the court. And we don't always talk about the impact on winning that they've had at different points throughout their career. Ochai Abaji has won in college at the highest level. He has helped captain a Kansas program last year, but also really developed over the course of his entire career at Kansas and really molded himself into a true leader on that team. And then who he is as a person – how he gets along with his teammates, how coachable he is. I've heard nothing but great things from not only other scouts that I've talked to, but also C.J. Moore from The Athletic came on this podcast feed not too long ago, just shortly after Kansas won the national championship, and he gave a glowing review of Ochai Abaji, not just from the piece that he did as he is heavily involved and covering the Kansas program for the Athletic, but also just spoke to some of the other things he's heard about Ochai and his experiences and and getting to talk with him and speak with some of his teammates and obviously Coach Bill Self. Nothing but glowing reviews across the board for this young man, and when you factor in his game, how he can come in and impact the NBA, the type of position, the type of role that he can have on the floor, he just seems like one of these tailor-made role players who NBA teams should be looking to draft around lottery range and we'll touch on his floor and what we think his draft floor actually is. I have him inside my top 20, probably closer to the back half of that top 20. You actually have him still as a lottery prospect, Nick. Why is he one of your guys? Why are you believing in him as highly as you are? And what do you think his draft floor is in 2022?
1: So I have Oshai Agbaji at 13th on my board and He is someone who Tyler Metcalf, our No Ceilings NBA colleague, and I have been talking about on the NBA Deep Dives podcast for years now. And when he started his career at Kansas, he was an elite athlete with serious defensive chops who had a ton of offensive question marks, particularly with his shooting. And by the time he finished his senior year for the Kansas Jayhawks, he had transformed into an elite three-point shooter, 41% shooter on six and a half attempts from deep per game. And he went from being someone who was an elite athlete with solid defensive skills to being one of, The best off ball defenders in this draft class. I would say probably the best off ball defender on the wing of anybody in this draft class. And he's someone who I've bought into for a long time now. But, you know, when he started out at Kansas, I was buying in as, you know, he's an excellent athlete and he'll be a really solid defensive piece. And I hope he can develop the rest of his offensive game. And Just the development from being an eight and a half point per game scorer his first season at Kansas to just under 19 points a game this past season, along with that vastly improved three point shooting. He's just a spectacular development story. And, you know, every single piece of news that I've heard about him as a human being and, you know, everything about him off the court just speaks to him being an exceptional person and exceptional you know potential piece for any nba team that might look to draft him and you know again he has just shown so much development over the course of his time at kansas and i think a lot of the reason why people are dropping him down their draft boards is a concern that comes up a lot in this space which is you know oh he's a senior right he's going to be 22 years old how much developmental room does he have left and
0: we are not ages at no ceilings nick that's right we are not ages we are not
1: no, we are not. And I'm going to try and make the argument for why, in particular with Ochai Bhaji, I am not, is that over the course of his four years at Kansas, we have seen... Evidence of his work ethic. We have seen evidence of just how dramatically he can improve his game. I mean, 31% three point shooter his first year, 34% his second year, 38% his third year, and 41% this past season from three point range. And, you know, that's to say nothing of how much he's grown as a secondary playmaker, as, you know, someone who makes good decisions with the ball in his hands as a passer versus someone who had a negative assist to turnover ratio during his first year at. Kansas even though he wasn't the lead guy on that offense you know granted he still has a bit of a turnover prone issue but you know that's with him being the alpha and the omega of the Kansas offense as opposed to just you know being a bit player and he's someone who is an exceptionally talented off-ball defender who has shown serious development just over the course of his college career and you know, there are people who say, oh, well, he's 22 years old, how much developmental room does he have left? Well, I mean, not to go with the most obvious example possible. But, you know, LeBron James in his late 20s developed a much more diverse post game, And that seriously extended his, you know, ability to continue to be an elite scorer in the later years of his career. And, you know, you can think of other examples of players who added elements to their games later in their careers, like, players who have really good work ethics don't stop developing as players and as prospects. You know, it's not just, oh, he's 21 years old, he'll never develop again. Like, that's that's not how it works. And Pusha <laughs> Akbaji in particular... You know, it's not just everything you hear about him off the court, about his work ethic, about the kind of person he is. There is statistical evidence of the kind of work ethic that Ushayag Baji has, of the amount of work he has put into his game. You know, it's easiest to see if you just look at his three-point shooting numbers, you know, from 31% on three and a half attempts a game to 41% on six and a half attempts per game. You know, There is statistical evidence that he has put in a ton of work on his game and has improved as a player. And even though he is 22 years old, and therefore you know it's a little bit less pie-in-the-sky kind of projection as opposed to, oh, what will this 18-year-old turn out to be, he has given us, again, statistical evidence of the fact that he has this great work ethic and has improved dramatically in important areas of his game. And there's absolutely no reason for me to expect that he won't continue to develop into his later 20s. But even if he doesn't, even if the Oshai Baji that we saw during his senior year of Kansas is the Oshai Baji that is going to play in the NBA and he's not going to improve in anything, which, you know, I think is a ridiculous assumption on its face, but let's just take that assumption for the moment, right? Mm -hmm. even if he just continues to be the player that he was this past season at Kansas, you're getting someone who you can plug in right away as a role player who you can rely on to knock down threes and seriously boost your team's defense as an incredible off ball defensive asset who, you know, in addition to his three point shooting, he was also in the 97th percentile as a cutter, which, you know, pretty good. Right. And, you know, he's someone who has a really, excellent complementary skill set on the offensive end and is an incredibly talented off-ball defender who, again, even if he doesn't develop any further from where he is right now, he's still someone who will be, in my mind, a very valuable NBA rotation player because of his shooting and his off-ball defense. And, you know, that's that's the argument for if he doesn't develop any further. And, you know, not to beat a dead horse here, but we've seen evidence throughout the course of his college career that that's just not the kind of player he is. He's someone who adds things to his game every season. And there's no reason for me to expect that he won't continue to do that at the NBA level as well.
0: An impassioned case for one Ochai Abaji. I love hearing it. I'm hoping that I get another impassioned case for EJ Liddell out of Ohio State and another player who, listen, Maxwell chose him as one of his guys. I would Be surprised if Tyler Metcalf would not choose E.J. Liddell as one of his guys when he comes on this podcast. He's another big favorite um, and and would love for his own Minnesota Timberwolves to draft somebody like E.J. Liddell. A player who I was not initially high on him at the beginning of this draft cycle. I don't think you were irrationally high on him either, but you certainly grew to appreciate his game over the course of the draft cycle, and you became one of the people in those ceilings who – wanted to argue for Liddell when we were, you know, putting our composite big board together and we were sitting in the mock draft meetings, looking at where should we slot in somebody like him. And it gets tougher and tougher to make a case against EJ Liddell. When you do watch the film, you break down his strengths, his weaknesses, and then you factor in how his strengths in particular translate to what playoff basketball looks like in today's NBA. He just seems like, well, maybe not immediately. At some point over the next two to three years, he will be a player who can impact the playoffs in a positive way, a, a similar way in some respects to what we would expect out at the top end of Tegan Murray as well, for example, which was, it was interesting. While I don't fully agree that the gap may be a little closer than we may want to admit between Murray and Liddell. It was really interesting to hear somebody like Kyle Boone from CBS sports come on the podcast and say that he's a, as big of a Liddell believer as anybody else in the program. He thinks the gap between those guys is narrower than some of us would want to care to admit. And, it just makes me think like even having Liddell where I do in like the early twenties, should he be somebody that I do have higher on my board because of the impact that he could have, particularly for a good team in the near future. So why is he one of your guys, Nick, where do you have him on your board and, and what's kind of your outlook for him as he heads into the NBA?
1: So going into this season slash at the end of last draft cycle, I had EJ Liddell as an early second round pick. I think he showed clear signs of positive developments from his first season at ohio state to his sophomore year you know he started every game in his sophomore year after not starting at all during his first season at ohio state he seriously developed as a three-point shooter between his first year and his second year and he was someone who i thought would be a really solid early second round pick maybe even end of the first round pick at the end of last season and then This season, you know, he improved quite a bit as a three-point shooter. He got a little bit better as a passer and playmaker for others. But really the big thing for EJ Liddell is he improved drastically as a rim protector. And, you know, he shot up from just over a block a game during his sophomore season to 2.6 blocks per game during his past season at Ohio State. He showed that he's someone who can, you know, be a rim protector for a team you know maybe even as a small ball five but certainly a weak side rim protector as a power forward option he got near 20 points per game scoring this past season at ohio state he upped his three-point volume and his three-point percentage from just under three attempts per game and 34 percent from deep to just under four attempts per game and 37 percent from deep this past season and you know especially given his remarkable growth on the defensive end this past season you know I am more than willing to buy into EJ Liddell the only reason that I don't think the gap between him and Keegan Murray is as small as some might argue is just because I really really believe in Keegan Murray it has absolutely nothing to do with how much I also believe in EJ Liddell I have him at 18th on my board right now and you know with EJ Liddell again his growth on the defensive end was absolutely spectacular and it makes it a lot easier to project his fit into a wide variety of different rotational contexts you know he's someone who heading into the year seemed like he was pretty positionally locked as like a power forward type now with this past season you know given how strong he is and how bulky his frame is you know combined with his incredible improvement as a rim protector his you know, genuine improvement in terms of just flexibility and, you know, athleticism between his sophomore season and his junior year. I think that EJ Liddell is someone who could, you know, easily be a solid rotation player for a decade in the NBA. And if he continues to develop as dramatically on the defensive end as he did this past season and continues to steadily progress in his offensive game as he also did this past season, I think he's someone who. You know, we haven't really seen i think the limit of just the kind of player that he can be so given the skills that he has right now i think that a lot of different nba rotations could use him you know especially when we're talking about you know outside of the lottery these are playoff teams who could really use someone as a seventh or eighth man who can provide excellent defense from the forward spots slash from small ball center at times who can Space the floor as a three point shooter who's gotten much better as a passer and decision maker. So, you know, with EJ Liddell, I think there are a ton of different teams that could use him. And I think if he continues to go on the same developmental trajectory that he's shown over the past couple of seasons, he could continue to develop and become someone really special. But even if, you know, he's sort of maxed out his development to a certain extent, the kind of player that he is right now as a shot blocking threat and three point shooting big man who also can score inside really effectively. I think he's someone who would fit into nearly any NBA rotation basically right away.
0: And then last, but certainly not least, a player who I love when people such as yourself, Maxwell, you go off the board a little bit in terms of those who are looking at his first round candidates and you go into some potential second round prospects and Iverson Molinar is one of those guys, somebody who will talk about your evaluation on him, Nick. I'm sure I'm going to agree with a lot of the points that you're about to make. But he's somebody who is not really in this point guard conversation in terms of when we talk about who might be available early in the second round. And it's not even just the likes of like a, a Ty Ty Washington or a Kennedy Chandler or a John Montero or even a J.D. Davison we're talking about Andrew Nemhard potentially being drafted late in the first round and early in the second. And while, listen, I, I don't knock Andrew Nemhard's game. It's just this idea that NBA teams will draft older point guards in the second round. I've, I've, man, I've gotten up on my soapbox for so many of those types of guys to be drafted in the second round, yet for whatever reason, it doesn't happen. And all of a sudden, Andrew Nembhard's going to rise. I get some of the appeals about his game. He's a bigger guard, about 6'5", plays out of the pick and roll really well, um, has the court vision at his size to make those around him better, and has gotten better as a jump shooter and arguably as a better perimeter shooter than what Iverson Molinar has shown, at least over the course of last year. But I think Iverson Molinar should absolutely be in the discussion to be drafted in the second round if Andrew Nebhart's going to get the same consideration. And while Molinar, again, you can touch on some of the, the jump shot and efficiencies, Nick, you and I would both agree that I think Molinar is just somebody who – I buy his ability to break down NBA defenses more than I do somebody like Nemhart. I think he has the speed as an equalizer, the quickness, the burst. He When he gets to his spots, he's intelligent in how he approaches his his shot taking and his shot making. I think he's underrated a little bit as somebody who has touch on a runner. He finishes around the basket while he has that jump shot along the baseline, that spot that he loves to get that he can knock down. And if the three-point shooting does come around for him, even if you don't buy some of the the high-level passing to potentially come around, he still has shown that he can make better decisions with the basketball because he did it last year, he takes care of it, and he can be one of the more complete scoring guards, at the very least inside the arc, than you might be able to find in the second-round market. So why do you love Iverson Molinar, Nick? Why, why is he one of your guys in this draft class? And, and where do you fall on the the Iverson versus somebody like an Andrew nemhardt argument in terms of guards who you would target in the second round?
1: So in terms of your last question, I think the best way for me to make my point there is that I actually have Iverson Molinar towards the end of my first round at this point. And I want to go back to something that I sort of hinted at earlier when we were talking about Davion Mitchell, which is, you know, I've mentioned this many, many times on the NBA Deep Dives podcast, but I refer to myself as a partial free throw truther in the sense that, you know, I think that there is a lot to be said about the small sample size of three-point shooting, especially at the college level, which I've referred to before as the Derek Williams principle, where, you know, a couple of really hot games or a couple of really terrible games from long range can make you seem like a very, very different kind of shooter than you actually are. And with Iverson Molinar, it's a bit of the reverse of the argument for why I believed in Jaden Ivey as a shooter. So, in his first year at Mississippi State, Iverson Molinar shot 37% from three-point range, granted on a very small sample size, but, you know, still 37%, very respectable, and 77% from the free throw line, you know, clearly indicating that he is pretty good touch. His second season, he shot 44% from three-point range on 3.4 attempts per game, so, you know, a much healthier volume from three-point range, and you know, 44% from long range is an elite number for a three-point shooter. And he also shot just over 80% from the free throw line as well. So, you know, again, more positive indicators of what kind of touch he has. And then this past season, his junior year, he shot 25% from three-point range on three attempts per game. And, you know, ultimately for me, I think the reason that I consider myself a partial free throw truther is because the sample size of three-point shooting at the college level can be really skewed by a few bad games or a bad month, as I mentioned, for Jaden Ivey and his poor run in February. And Iverson Molinar got to the free throw line five and a half times per game this past season and shot 87% from the free throw line. So when you combine his three-point shooting in his previous seasons with the touch that he displayed from the free throw line. You know, in addition to the fact that, as you mentioned, he's got a really diverse scoring game inside the arc. He shot 52% on two-pointers this past season and, you know, did really well with his mid-range game, mid-range pull-ups. And as you mentioned, his runner, he ranked in the 91st percentile on runners in the half court per synergy. So, you know, again, someone who's got a really solidly defined in-between game, who can get to the basket, who, you know, in comparison to Andrew Nemhart, is a much better athlete and can get to his spots much more easily. And, you know, certainly the dip in three-point shooting is a concern. And Tyler Metcalf pointed out to me that, you know, he saw a bit of a hitch in Molinar's shot down the stretch run of the season, which, you know, when I went back and looked at the tape was certainly concerning to me. But Ultimately, he has a history of being a well-above-average three-point shooter who happened to have a really terrible year from three-point range at the worst possible time for his draft stock. But you know, ultimately, he has the potential to be a three-level scorer if his three-point shooting is anywhere near closer to what it was his first two years in college as opposed to his last year in college. And then you know, when looking at him in comparison to some of the other point guards in this class, he has grown so much as a decision maker and playmaker slash passer. I mean, his last season at Mississippi State, he averaged 2.3 assists against 2.2 turnovers per game. This past season, that went up to 3.6 assists per game against 2.4 turnovers per game. So, you know, very strong improvement in terms of his ability to make plays without turning the ball over. And, I think he's you know, not a particularly flashy slash brilliant passer, but he's someone who makes very, very good decisions with the ball in his hands, both in terms of generating his own offense and also generating offense for his teammates. And ultimately for me, I think that the combination of the touch that he displayed at the free throw line, the touch that he displayed from the mid-range, both in terms of his runners and his mid-range pull-ups, and also his history of being a well above average three-point shooter... I'm willing to buy into the notion that he'll be at least pretty close to average as a three-point shooter at the NBA level, as opposed to the 25% three-point shooter that he was this past season. And, you know, again, if he knocks down, like, seven or eight more three-pointers over the course of the season, I think the discussion about him being a non-shooter slash terrible three-point shooter is a very different discussion, you know, especially when you... Take into account the fact that he was a 37% shooter his first year in college and a 44% three-point shooter his last season.
0: Well, Nick, I certainly agree with a lot of the points you just made about Mr. Molinar. He is somebody who, like I said, I'm not as high on him as you and Metcalf are, for example, but he is a guard who I would seriously consider targeting in the second round. And if anybody feels differently, I would seriously go back and look at some of the tape. Um, with with Iverson Molinar and I know that last year everybody probably wasn't rushing to their laptops or their TVs to throw on Mississippi State basketball (laughs) but I can assure you the tape is there and even though you might have some opinions on Andrew Demharb and you might sign with him strongly in this argument I can also guarantee you've seen a lot more of Nemhard because he played at Gonzaga as well as even, even at a more quote unquote power program like Florida in, in his very early college basketball days, I can assure you you've seen much more tape on Andrew Nemhard than you have on Iverson Molinar. So go balance the scales a little bit, rewatch some of the film. And I think you'll at the very least be in my camp regarding his draft stock. And you might possibly be even higher on him after doing the deep dive like Nick and, and Metcalf are. So I appreciate when, One of our draft analysts here at No Ceilings brings somebody new to the fold and has different names to talk about, which Nick has done for us at No Ceilings all year long with his incredible Sleeper Deep Dive series. So definitely go check out more of his work on No Ceilings if you haven't already. But Nick, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, it means a lot. I've said this before and I'll continue to say it. you're one of the smartest people in this space period, not just that no ceilings, I'm honored to have you as a colleague. You're somebody who I can depend on, I can trust to work alongside. So thank you for everything you and I have done together already and I can't wait to continue working with you on more projects here in the future. One more time, plug yourself and everything you're doing for for my audience, as they need to be not just reading your work on those ceilings, but following you personally and paying attention to to you and, and what you're tweeting out when you're sharing your thoughts.
1: Well, first of all, thank you so much for the kind words. It really means a lot to me to hear that you, you know, value my insights on this so highly, and you're someone who I am just so overwhelmingly in love with all of your work, everything that you do over at No Ceilings NBA, everything you do over here on the Draft Deeper podcast. It's truly been an honor and a pleasure to work with you for the past few months. And I can't wait to see what else we have in store for No Ceilings going forward. So in terms of plugs, as you mentioned at the top, and thank you again for the plug. And also thank you again for, you know, editing it slash reviewing it before it went out to the world. I wrote a piece last week about why I choose to write about the NBA draft that really meant a lot to me and really meant a lot to me that it seemed to resonate with so many people in the No Ceilings crew in particular, but also in the wider draft space. So please read that if you want sort of an introduction to my work, that piece really meant a lot to me. And then, so this would be yesterday by the time all of you are listening to this podcast, but today in terms of when we're recording this podcast, I wrote my most recent Sleeper Deep Dives article on Darian Sebron, who is someone who is... You know, along with Iverson Molinar and all of my other guys in this class, just someone who's a ton of fun to watch and is an absolute menace at scoring around the basket and is someone who I think could be a real second round steal for any team that, you know, picks him up sort of middle to late in the second round. And then in terms of my other work. I host the NBA Deep Dives podcast for Hashtag Basketball and the Hashtag Basketball Podcast Network. I co-host that, of course, with my Hashtag Basketball and No Ceilings NBA colleague, Tyler Metcalf. So please check that out as well if you hadn't. And then in terms of written work, you can find my written work on Hashtag Basketball as well as at Nets Republic and, of course, over at No Ceilings NBA. And for social media, you can find me on Twitter at NBAJOHNSON. And I post all of my work on my Twitter page, be it podcasts or articles or interviews or anything of that sort. And then, you know, finally, just one more plug for noceilingsmba.bigcartel.com and the incredible draft guide that we just put out. I'm so, so proud of all the work that all of us put in for that draft guide. And it was just a wonderful experience to be able to edit and read through that draft guide, I'm really happy with the way it turned out. So if you want to support us over here at No Ceilings NBA, definitely check out the draft guide and the merch that we have available on that website as well. So again, thank you so much, Nathan, for having me on. It's been a pleasure working with you at No Ceilings, and I'm really looking forward to what we have in store.
0: And a big thank you as always in order for those who choose to listen to the Draft Deeper podcast. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you haven't subscribed to Draft Deeper already, you can do so. Wherever you get your podcast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, make sure you're following me on Twitter at Draft Deeper. And yeah, make sure you're following No Ceilings on Twitter at No Ceilings NBA and are subscribed to the Substack, stack, no Ceilings It's free 99, baby, as Corey Tullipa always likes to say. So definitely. Make sure you're plugged into everything that we're doing because the work is going to be coming fast and furious as we get ready to lead into the June 23rd draft day. I promise we have so much in store. You're going to love all of it. But until we release more content, until the next episode of this podcast, once again, thank you all for listening. And I hope you all have a wonderful rest of your week.